While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all aside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with them and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. Jesus, would you speak to our hearts now as we turn to your word in Christ's name. Amen. A few weeks ago, I got a a surprising call from Sandy Stoller that a sermon of mine had given her husband a heart attack. And I just want to welcome back Paul, who's back from the hospital and with us this evening and has made an amazing recovery. And let's welcome him back. Paul, it's so great to have you with us. I've heard that the gospel can pierce the heart, but I don't take the blame that I gave you that heart attack. But I'm glad that you're back, Paul. It's great to have you. Uh, We are going to be looking at our gospel passage um, this evening. So you'll need your Bibles because we all, it's such a long uh, story that we only gave you the last bit. Um, so if you have a Bible, open it up. If you grab your phone, do that. But remember, if the sounds of your phone betray the truth, you've been playing Candy Crush, you can't blame the children because they're all over there. All right, Eric, I'm watching you particularly. So let's do that. Open it up, and we're going to start at Matthew 5. Verse 21. And this, there, there are a number of themes in this passage, and it's fascinating, isn't it, to see how Jesus handles the things that come at him. And so when we begin in Matthew, uh, sorry, Mark chapter 5, um, verse 21, Jesus crosses over by boat to the other side of the lake. He's entered a region where he's become Um, We're not sure if he's A-list yet. He's certainly a B-list celebrity. His popularity has spread. And so when Jesus' presence is made known, a crowd gathers. Okay? And uh, there's a crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then the surprises start happening. It says here, one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. So... Is he going to the lake house? You know, we're not sure. What's he going? And then we see that seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet. So Mark is the action gospel writer. The word suddenly happens 66 66 times in this gospel. It's a constant movement. And so what we see here is that this man who was... um, who, um, who was this layman who was a ruler in the synagogue, 
he presided over the affairs of the synagogue, he would have been considered to be very closely associated to the religious establishment and the religious elite who already had a very particular view of Jesus, which is not popular, right? They weren't big fans. And so we see here in verse 21, 22 even, when, um, where is it? There we are. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there, seeing Jesus immediately. Well, immediately is not there. The, the Dave Larley version of the Bible put that in there. But when he sees him, upon seeing him, he falls at his feet. One of the themes in this, these stories of the, the dead daughter and of the sick woman is fear. And uh, during this pandemic season, uh, people have misunderstood fear throughout. Fear has been said in one thing that it's inherently bad or it's inherently good and we should behave a certain way. There is a healthy fear and an, un and an unhealthy fear. I have a very healthy fear of gravity. I weigh 205 pounds. I'm not very nimble. I will never be a trapezist. Therefore, I stay away from high places. Because my belief in gravity versus my body is that gravity will always win. And so my fear of heights informs me to use extreme prejudice when dealing with high places, right? I try to use wisdom when I have to go up a ladder if I can't prevent going up a ladder. So there's a healthy fear, and that's the fear that helps us avoid disaster. That kind of fear has another side to it which also tips into respect, awe, and reverence. Right? So when I was a boy, my dad and I were in northern New Brunswick. We're at the mighty Restigash River, which has the best salmon fishing in the world. And uh, we went to run the river. It was the month of May. The water was high. And the first thing, I was in the canoe. We're still on the land. I was ready to go. And dad took me to the riverside, and he just watched it. And I said, Dad, what are you doing? He said, you have to respect the river because the river doesn't really have an opinion towards you. And if we approach this the right way, all will be well. But we have to respect and respond to it accordingly. And I said, okay, can we go? He says, yeah, it'll be fine. Let's go. So there's something about that appropriate perspective on something that also can work its way into fear. Unhealthy fear is when we step into a place where fear has all of a sudden taken on control of our core identity and we're shaped by it. It's harder, it's harder to see, it's really unhealthy, and it shapes everything of who we are, right? The other tries to preserve who we are. So, the two sides. So what happens here is that a religious leader should have been fearful of associating with Jesus. Because the danger is immediate ostracization, immediate removal from everything that they believe in. But what's happened here is he sees Jesus. He's heard of Jesus. And seeing Jesus, he falls at his feet in an act of awe and reverence. His desperate circumstances have led him to worship him as the giver of life, even though he didn't know it. He was so desperate. 
And he pleaded earnestly with him, my daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So what did Jesus do? Verse 24, so Jesus went with him. It's amazing. He just goes with him. And then we were hit into the middle story. So suddenly a large crowd followed and pressed around him. So this is, there's, it's just, it's a mad rush of people. And while Jesus is on his way to heal Jairus' daughter, Mark interjects a simultaneous event of this healing of a woman with a bleeding problem, which is significant because in that day, there's no way she's getting near the temple. There's no way she would be seen in public, and there's no way she would allow anyone to touch her because the fact that she is sick was thought that it would contaminate anyone who was near her. And on account of her condition, she's ceremonially unclean and is not permitted to enter the temple. She's not allowed to associate with women. She is out. So there's something big going on here, right? And then all of a sudden, what happens? When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in verse 27. She came up behind him in the crowd. So she thinks she's anonymous. And she touches his cloak. Elsewhere it says she touched the hem of his garment because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And here it is, suddenly. Verse 29, immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. And then it gets really interesting. Remember, the goal here is to get to the girl before the girl dies, or so they thought. But Jesus isn't constrained by time because he is the author of time. He plays with time. And so suddenly he stops and he senses in himself that somebody has touched him and he says, who touched my clothes? And he turns around and in verse 31, you see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? Probably Peter, we don't really know. Peter never thinks to uh, think before speaking. He just throws it in. Um, And then he says, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who'd done it. He probably felt somehow in his body that power had gone out from him, not merely by being touched, but by being touched by someone who has faith in him. So we have two people in desperate circumstances who, motivated by what they're feeling, take action based on good evidence. What is the good evidence? It's what Jesus had already done when he was in this area previously, and it's the snippets of what they'd heard him teach before this incident. And based on that evidence, they've acted. That's what faith is. Faith is choosing to make a decision based on good evidence. So when Jesus says, who touched me, the woman is fearful. Because this man, some are calling a prophet, This man has all kinds of reputation. Doesn't matter what you think of him, the crowd believe that he's a religiously important figure. 
And the last thing that should happen to a religiously important figure, if you believe that your sickness can infect someone, your spiritual sickness, which is really the issue, is that you shouldn't touch them because you might bring them down. So she has fear and trembling. Her fear may have been partly because in working her way through the crowd to get to Jesus, she's also touched many others. So if she's ratted out, if she's discovered, then death is certain, right? Because you can stone someone in this culture if they've broken certain ceremonial laws. And again, Mark hits home this theme of fear. Jesus kept, verse 32, Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. She's afraid that, of what the crowd will do to her, so she falls at his feet, which is code that Mark uses to signify action, betraying, awe, and reverence. She falls at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. What's so incredible here is the picture of healing that Jesus paints. We think today that, that healing, we think of it in very particular ways. And healing is best approached with a holistic view of the body, which was common in that day. So she presented herself. The immediate issue was the physical sickness she had. She's healed of it. But by having that healed and by giving her grace... Because the holiness of Jesus went against the current of what was plaguing her. And so instead of being infected by this woman's estate, that Jesus' holiness, his health, his vitality, his presence flowed into her and made her well. Not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually. And that's the grid we work through here at St. Bart's, is that healing is to be thought of not just with physical concerns, though physical concerns are incredibly important, but also emotionally, right? That's probably why half of you are therapists or counselors or work in some kind of capacity. We love it because we need you. Um, so there's the emotional piece, but there's also the spiritual piece, which is that she's just been assured that she wasn't the cause of the problem. Most people who are sick, whether it's physically, emotionally, or spiritually, think they're that way because of what they've done or something's gone wrong. But Jesus comes along and says, you've been made well by your faith. Never once does Jesus ever blame someone for the fact that they're sick. You did that, you deserve it. But that's where I go to the moment I get sick or, you know, when I, I've had, I don't recommend this to anyone, I've had two kidney stones in my life. I never want to go back there, right? It's just dark. And the moment I, when I had my second one three years ago, I was like, what have I done, Lord? And I began to repent of everything I ever could imagine, right? And thinking that that would solve it, but no, I just didn't drink enough water. 
but I was trying to help people, and I got dehydrated. You know, so it wasn't my fault. And that's the big thing that Jesus says. It's not your fault. It's not your fault that you touched me. And touching me, you did the right thing because you acted based on good evidence. Because you believed that I am the Son of God. He doesn't say this, but that's what he's alluding to, that I am the Son of God. Awe and reverence from two people in desperate need. And then things become more complicated. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So she's no longer to live a life of isolation, which she lived for 12 years. She can go back into the community. Her life is turned around for good. But while Jesus was still speaking in verse 35, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? <laughs> so they're not believing any of it. They either haven't heard of who Jesus is or what he's done, and they believe that death has the last word. Ignoring what they said, he just didn't accept the premise of their question. Which is great, isn't it? And he reframes it beautifully. Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid. Just believe. He didn't let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. And it was a custom that, um, you know, in the event of, of, of death or tragedy, that there were these professional weepers Weepers and wailers. It sounds like a hockey team or something else. Um, but they would come and they would help loudly reflect the deep grief in the face of death. And it was like a profession. And it was kind of cathartic. Because sometimes if you're in the midst of suffering, you just don't have the words. So if you hear someone doing it, okay, well, maybe that'll make me feel better. It doesn't, but you think it might make you feel better. And uh, some in the crowd, <clears throat> they're professional who, and they were actually a required presence at funerals. You know, you just had to pay the funeral director for the weeping and wailing fee, right? There's no negotiation. You just had to have them. And amid the morning, Jesus proclaims that the child is not dead but asleep. And so we see here's the one who can wake people up. They begin to mock and laugh, and the crowd takes Jesus' statement literally supposing that Jesus cannot accept the reality of death. See, they know that denial is not just a river in Egypt. Right? They know that denial, I know, it's, there might be a few more dad jokes. I, I, I don't apologize, actually. I relish in it, so either get on board or wait for Chris. Um, but what he does is he then begins to take action. He says that the, they, they say, no, he's dead. The child had indeed died. We know that from Luke's gospel. But from Jesus' point, her real death is only sleep. And so he throws them out. The only way I know to clear a house out of a party is to cut the power and call the police. I haven't had to do that yet in Dallas, but, you know, you never know. Um, but with Jesus, he just gets them out. And you can see that there is a pastoral side to the, the action of Jesus where he says, you're not doing any good here. Leave so I can do what's needed. 
And then we come to the climax. And all the while, this father is beside himself and knows that Jesus is the only help he has. And this is where in Luke we get the, I believe, help me with my unbelief, which is the greatest prayer. That is the prayer of faith. He puts them out. He takes the child's father and mother and the disciples who are with him, and he went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. And then we have another word. Immediately, the child stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. <laughs> completely counterintuitive. Um, don't tell anyone what I've just done. And what he's trying to do is, to, he, it's the world's worst kept secret, right? He doesn't want it proclaimed yet that the Messiah is here because the time is not yet. Because there's a time when the people begin to proclaim that it's going to usher something in. That time is not yet. But he says to them, yeah, give her something to eat. Because 12-year-olds are always hungry. They're just always hungry, right? And pasta doesn't just do it. It was probably falafel or you know, hummus or something else they gave them. But that's it. It's incredible. And the amazement of those who witnessed the miracle doesn't necessarily indicate faith. And that's, that's the other side of this. You can be amazed and not believe. Because belief, faith, is choosing to make a decision based on evidence. And what I love about Mark's account is that the, the Aramaic is included there, Talitha Kum, which adds to the first-hand evidence of what happened. No doubt some believed, but others remained puzzled. So, Jesus just moved through it. For 20 years, I suffered with a skin condition that, I mean, Rachel and I had been married, uh, well, what, 18? Um, and until three years ago, my, we would have to change the sheets regularly because my back was just, it was just awful eczema and it was just, it was, it was awful. It bled continually. And um, I, a friend at All Saints sent me to someone he, he trained who is an allergist. And for three years, my back has been normal. And the medical doctors have just nailed it. And I am just so thankful. And so healing relies today in the church on medicine and subject matter specialists. Um, and, and I just love that. And I, I've sent so many people to him, it's kind of hard to get in to see the doc now. But never mind. It's good, right? Because my life has been changed by doctors. And the thing, though, when we pray for healing in the church is that sometimes things happen, and sometimes they don't, and we don't know, and it's a mystery. What we do know is that when we never pray for healing in the church, things never happen. 
right, in the church. And people have to depend on others for that support. When we pray for healing in the church, it's not that this is the only way. It's just part of the equation. Remember, we're looking to help. And we're looking to help by uh, praying for someone, praying God's very best to come into that person's life to help them where it's hurting. And sometimes it's hurting in places physically, sometimes emotionally, sometimes spiritually. And so we pray. And we pray to do a couple of things. One, to break down the isolation that comes when someone is sick. And the community gathers around and the community shows support and care. The second thing is that we do it just as part of who we are. It's Jesus goes on to teach later that he gives authority to people, his followers, to preach the good news, to heal the sick. Now, our responsibility is to live in that place of mystery. And what that means is that some days when we pray for people for healing, we will go through the agony of the cross. And someday, and when that happens, we stand with the people we've prayed for and prayed with and we weep with them and we love them and we support them. And then sometimes we pray for people and things go really well and suddenly our problem is just gone, whether it's emotionally, spiritually, or physically. We see the glory of the resurrection and we rejoice with them. And the thing, reason why a lot of churches don't do this is because it's complex and it's hard because it requires the community to step into that place of mystery and to do what Jesus asks no other community to do, which is to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. When you're weeping, you don't ever want to naturally rejoice. And when you're rejoicing, you want to pretend, well, I do. I'll, I'll talk about myself. When I'm rejoicing in a good place, I just don't want to see where I need to weep because it's so counterintuitive. That's why the church is Jesus' idea. This is what St. Barts has to offer East Dallas. Uh, on Wednesday, we had a worship service. It's amazing. The mo one of the most amazing things that happened was that just before we were about to start, we weren't wearing robes. We thought we'd be hip. So I had my hipster brown jeans on, and Chris said, I'm going to say you something in love your jeans have ripped all the way down the back. <laughs> so we found the most amazing tape, and I kind of, you know, duct taped them together, and nobody knew. The second thing, and I just thought that was just the most bizarre thing. I think it was, you know, the enemy or whatever. Bad tailoring. Uh, the second thing was is that somebody came to worship with us who's from the music industry in Dallas, and he could tell by the way he dressed that this wasn't really his normal and when we offered to pray at the end, he came forward and he said a bunch of stuff, which I won't tell. But he said, I don't really like being around people unless it's the church and we're worshiping. Because it's different. And that's the church. Where the real people at fault here are the religious elite because they established very clear laws that said who was in and who was out. All are welcome to God's table. All are welcome. The other people who are indicted here are the community. 
because they chose to ostracize and isolate those who were struggling. This is not what we do here. We welcome all, no matter what you're going through, and we say we will walk with you, we will pray with you, we will rejoice with you, and we will weep with you, because that's what the Lord asks of his church, and that's what we're going to do. So, there we are. Jesus just nails it out of the bat. But he would, wouldn't he? Because he's the son of God and came to redeem the world. So what we're going to do is I'm going to ask Justin to come up. He's going to play softly in the background. And we're going to invite just a time of response. And the one thing I'd like to ask is for those of you who remain seated, just to be praying because as you pray, people are going to come forward because we're also going to invite people to come who would like prayer for healing to kneel at the rail. We haven't used this in 19, 19 months. So, you know, we've got to get our money's worth by using the, 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 uh, the altar rail. And whether it's physical, emotional, or spiritual, or you're just hungry for more of the Lord, we're going to invite you just to come and kneel at the rail And we are just going to simply anoint you with oil and pray a simple prayer because this is really between you and him. And we're just here to facilitate that encounter. So as Justin leads, you have two options. We won't spend the whole night doing this, though if you'd like to, we will, but we won't. Um, But we could. Um, as, as Justin plays in an orderly manner, if you would like to receive just a simple prayer, we'll anoint you with oil, we'll put our hands on you, and pray a simple prayer of healing. And then once you've been anointed and prayed for, you can return to your seat, you can stay there for a while, um, and then we'll just go on to the next person. So we really want to be careful because we don't want to get in the way with, what, with anything God is trying to do, which is a problem most priests have. So that's why we're just going to keep it simple so that you can have a time with Jesus. Shall we pray? Let me pray. Jesus, you are a marvel and a wonder. And we thank you that you put the love that you have for us on display on the cross. And on the cross, you disarmed death. And by rising from death, you've brought all of us who believe in you eternal life. And tonight what we ask for is for a foretaste of what awaits us. So would you come by your presence, Jesus, and as people come forward to receive from you, would you meet with them? In Jesus' name, amen.